0: Welcome back to Africa Investigates, a podcast that delves into some of the biggest cases of financial corruption across the continent. I'm your host, Chris Roper. This week, we focus on Kalawali Aluko, a notorious Nigerian oil mogul. He was recently exposed in a Panama Papers investigation for owning four offshore assets in the British Virgin Islands, one of the world's busiest offshore havens. In his heyday, Aluko was a playboy, regularly appearing on celebrity Instagrams and entertainment tabloids. He's been spotted partying with A-list celebrities around the world, such as Leonardo DiCaprio, P Diddy, and Jamie Foxx. Beyonce and Jay-Z even rented his yacht to sail across the Mediterranean Sea in September of 2015. But when he wasn't making headlines for his celebrity lifestyle, Aluka was criticised for being one of the Minister's Men. A clique of businessmen, the Minister's Men allegedly secured oil licences with startling ease from the Minister of Oil, Designee Alison Madueke, in 2011. Aluka and Alison Madueke deny the alleged collusion. However, Burnshaw Associates Limited, one of Aluka's companies, was formed only three weeks after Alison Madueke took office. In March 2014, the company registered a jet offshore in Malta, the same aircraft model that Alison Madueke used during her time in office. A second one of Aluka's companies, Atlantic Energy, was created the day before he signed a deal with the Petroleum Minister. And after acquiring the oil license, Aluka sent Nigerian oil abroad that was worth tens of millions of dollars while boasting of strong government relationships. However, in September 2014, Aluko fell out of favor with Alison Maduaki. Atlantic defaulted on its loans and owed Nigeria over a billion dollars, an amount approximate to the budgets of four Nigerian states. In response, the government sent out pleas to potential investors who they hoped would offset the debt left by Atlantic's bankruptcy. However, this did not work. Today, Aluko stands as one of four defendants accused of cheating the Nigerian government out of nearly $1.8 billion from oil sales. This July, authorities dropped his name from the charge sheet because they could not serve him in court, meaning they were unable to locate him and to charge him in person. Currently, Aluko is at large and wanted by the Nigerian government. In a separate but related case, Nigerian authorities are investigating what role Aluko and his companies played in smuggling millions of dollars out of the country as kickbacks to Alison Madueke, in connection with the former minister's bribery and money laundering case. News reports indicate that the United States, the United Kingdom and Switzerland continue to investigate Aluko for the roles he and his companies played in concealing Alison Madueke's transfer of wealth outside Nigeria. Today on our podcast, we discuss the cases against the Nigerian oil mogul and explore what it means for political and financial corruption in Nigeria at large. First, we will be joined by Will Fitzgibbon, the lead investigative reporter who put this case together for the African Network for Centers of Investigative Reporting. And later we'll be joined by Heinrich Bomka, a prosecutorial editor from South Africa, who will evaluate the strength of the case. Will Fitzgibbon is a Washington DC-based reporter for the International Consortium of International Journalists. In 2014, Will was ICIJ's first investigative journalism fellow, reporting on its Swiss Leaks project. Today, Will heads ICIJ's Africa Desk, coordinating and expanding ICIJ's collaboration with journalists across Africa. Will was the lead journalist on the story and joins us here today. Will, welcome to Africa Investigates. Out of the many cases of offshoring uh, revealed through the Panama Papers, what drew you to this case about the Nigerian oil magnate? Uh, why was this case selected for investigation?
1: This case was particularly striking within Panama Papers for a number of reasons. First was what I'd call its newsiness, its contemporaneity, if you like. This is an ongoing matter, not only in G- Nigeria, but as has been reported previously and as we know in a number of other jurisdictions across the world. So it had that value of being a story that showed not just historically how how offshore cases and offshore companies rather have been linked to serious allegations of wrongdoing, but Also how there are ongoing cases in 2016 that Nigerian authorities, at least in public court documents, have said offshore companies have been used to deal with significant sums of money and to take significant sums of money out of Nigeria. So for that reason, it was a story that I and our partners in Nigeria, the Premium Times, wished to tell.
0: Before the story was published in late July, Aluka was already a defendant in the Atlantic energy drilling case. Since the Nigerian government has already investigated Aluka for his illicit activities, can the new evidence that you gathered for the story be used to prosecute him, and if so, how?
1: The short answer to that question is, I don't know. What we've done at ICRJ and ANSI as journalists, and at Premium Times also, is to tell the story as journalists. Whether or not there is a follow-up from Nigerian authorities or international authorities, using some of the information that have emerged from Panama Papers, is no longer in the realm of journalism, but is now in the realm of officialdom.
0: In the story, he wrote that the prevalence of Nigerians within the Panama Papers may be no coincidence. The Nigerian government loses more money than any other African nation from illicit activity. That's 12% of its GDP per year money which could be used to provide health care, education and other services to millions of citizens. What are the political conditions that make Nigeria favorable for corruption, do you think?
1: I think something that fascinatingly came through in the Panama Papers was just how many Nigerian citizens or Nigerian passport holders there are. What's amazing about the Panama Papers database is that you can search for passport So you can search by the passport code for Nigeria and get a sense of how many people are in there, that is, how many Nigerians have shared their passport with this law firm, Mossack Fonseca, based in Panama but with offices around the world, as part of the registration process for an offshore company. Obviously, offshore companies are legitimate and have perfectly legal uses in very many countries and very many situations but obviously what the panama papers have shown is that there have been a large number of historical and contemporaneous examples in which these offshore companies have been used for wrongdoing or allegedly used for wrongdoing the nigerian case by virtue of the large amount of nigerian names jumped out at me and jumped out of many of us premium times has done great reporting really for weeks on end from april talking about the different cast of characters from Nigeria who appear within the Panama Papers. Although it would be wrong, of course, to say that Nigeria is unique or is somehow the most corrupt country in Africa. I don't believe that. We're reporting on the fact that there was an interesting amount or interestingly high amount of Nigerians within these Panama Papers. Certainly what experts experts told me was that Nigeria as an oil-dependent and natural resource wealthy country meant that like many other such countries across Africa had higher I suppose had a greater risk of being victims of elicit offshore practices because natural resources will always require some kind of government approval at some stage of the process and that leaves the resource industry and the country as a whole open to exploitation.
0: Do you think that the story has had impact on the country and if it has in what way and what does this mean for Nigerian politics at large?
1: I think the question of impact is often hard to a test or to notice, even obviously, following Panama Papers, there were a number of incidents, most famously, the resignation of the Prime Minister in Iceland, in which impact was visible and immediate. Obviously, we haven't seen that in Nigeria. I know that many members of civil society have been very vocal in calling on the government to act, not just in relation to the case we've been talking about, but in relation to the case of serving politicians and very senior politicians whose details have appeared in the Panama Papers. But we certainly haven't seen, at least to my knowledge, that same level as we've seen elsewhere of resignations or governments launching investigations. That said. With issues such as this, with large, multi-billion dollar investigations that span different countries, we as members of the public and journalists aren't always going to hear what's happening. We know that investigations and asset recovery cases are long, complex legal procedures, and I would hope, although I've unfortunately heard nothing to back me up, that there are at least people talking about what Panama Papers can be used to further existing investigations. Uh, or that that may be something that happens in the near future.
0: What can Nigeria do to begin to address collusion between the country's public and private sectors? What can the country do to move forward after the many cases of corruption that were exposed in the Panama Papers?
1: My sense is that Nigeria, even before Panama Papers, under the new president, has been doing a better job, or at least a more publicly noticeable job, of fighting corruption, and that's been something that we've heard under the current administration for a while. Remember a few weeks before the release of Panama Papers, there was a global anti-corruption conference in London during which the President of Nigeria quite rightly said Western governments should stop pointing the finger at countries like Nigeria and look to their own sins at home. Let's not forget that the offshore industry, by and large, functions and exists and is allowed to continue to exist because developed nations, especially the United States, the United Kingdom and places like Switzerland, allow lawyers, offshore laws to work almost in an untrammeled fashion. So I think this is not about just what Nigeria can do to address collusion between public sectors and private sector, but also what all countries, especially those developed countries, that really continue to be the lifeblood of the offshore industry can do to make sure that corporate activity, especially with the public sector, becomes more transparent, whether or not that's registers of beneficial owners such have been as have been mooted before and after Panama Papers, or a whole host of other suggestions that people much more intelligent than I have made as suggested responses to the Panama Papers leak.
0: Heinrich Bomker is a cross-examination advisor in the investigative lab at the African network of centers for investigative reporting. Now, unlike a traditional lawyer, Heinrich is closely tied to the editorial process and works with investigative journalists to build the most persuasive and legally justifiable cases against the culprits that they investigate. Heinrich, welcome to Africa Investigates. Uh, what was your role in the Panama Papers up to the point of publication? And given the legal issues in this particular case, what role might you play in any future reporting on the subject?
2: Unlike um, a lawyer who might vet a story um, to ensure that the facts are straight or to um, erect hurdles against anyone who wants to sue the journalist later for libel or defamation, my role was not so much to address those things, although they come into play as well, but to make the story more persuasive for the reader. In other words, to make the same story with the same substance, but to arrange it in such a way that you almost arguing your case and persuading a reader of the central allegation against the target. So it's not, it, it, it's not just putting the facts out there. It's making sure that those legitimate facts are arranged and presented in a way that makes the reader um, at the end of the five or ten minutes that they've granted you their attention to say, you know what, I agree with that, or I see the point, or this is outrageous. So that's what prosecutorial editing is about. It's about almost prosecuting a case as much as it is just putting the facts out there.
0: So we went over this when you last appeared on the show, but for new listeners, could you briefly recap what sort of substantive or linguistic issues you look for in cases um, as a prosecutorial editor?
2: There are a couple of things to look for Um, and and they stem from legal theory when one is criticizing a witness in the witness box for not being truthful Um, and that would be to explore inconsistencies. Sometimes you're lucky enough in a story to have a target of the story who has said different things on different occasions and those inconsistencies can sometimes be quite important um, contradictions between what that person is saying and what other people on the same side are saying. Sometimes rogues don't get their stories straight. And if you speak to two people who were involved in the same incident, um, some of the stories we've seen, uh, the excuses didn't um, match up between the mining company, for instance, and the local government official. Um, you would also look for strange coincidences that just a belief such as the ones that Will has, has pointed out, um, shelf companies that are registered a week before a contract is awarded, the airplane, you know, things that just don't, they, they, they don't, they smell, they stink a little bit, they are red flags. And, um, and then the, the, perhaps the most important one is to, once your once allegation has a certain amount of meat on it, the public expects not a legal expectation, because from a legal point of view, you can remain schtum the whole time. It's up to the lawyers or the prosecutor to prove your guilt. But the public works differently. Um, After, and it's a mysterious zone, at a certain point, once your allegation as a journalist has a certain amount of meat to it, uh, corroboration to it, the onus actually shifts onto the target to come to the party with an explanation and a rebuttal. And it's often that rebuttal or the refusal to engage in that rebuttal, which speaks volumes. And so that, these are things that in a courtroom often mean the difference between a, uh, an accused person being sentenced or not, and and the same applies in the court of public opinion, where a person for no good reason declines to provide corroboration for facts which are uniquely within his or her knowledge.
0: After reviewing the case against DeLuca, is there enough evidence to support ICIJ's allegations? And do you find the evidence and the facts persuasive?
2: There are uh, coincidences um, and there are also... Uh, one of the gems of this story is that the person who is being investigated actually is being investigated by the authorities as well. So that adds quite a lot of... There is no smoke... There's no fire... Sorry, there's no smoke without a fire uh, to the story. Luckily, um, he, he stands indicted criminally as well. And so, so, so if you put that together with the bank account that was mysteriously um, uh, uh, created, a company was created shortly before an oil co- contract was dished out, the airplane really once reached the point now where uh, the oil tycoon must come to the party and, and explain and say, no, this is what that company was for. It was a teddy bear company that I was launching for my children, or that plane, it's a Lear 45 that uh, I uh, bought, um, but it was a Lear 42 that the minister was flying around in, so it wasn't the same. There's enough work being done in the article to pass the baton to the other side to explain. And that's really the only criticism I have of the piece, and perhaps it's something that um, one can't get around, but instead of just saying he denied it, have a list of questions that were sent to him that he has denied, or he refuses to answer. Um, so one could actually ask him, well, you know, what kind of Learjet did you did you have? We just want to follow up. But of course, we could easily lay this allegation to rest. If you just give us the details of the jet, I'm sure we could check it out with the Nigerian authorities. And if the minister was using a different jet, that would clear everything up, of course. Uh, that kind of um, uh, approach. Um, and, and of course, if they, if they don't give you an answer, or they refuse to answer, you stick that in your story. And so you're not even making a direct allegation. You are saying, this is the question that we asked, and this is the non-response that we got. And you let your audience draw deductions from that.
0: Is there anything you would change about how the story was crafted to make the case against the Luca even stronger?
2: It's, what's nice about the story is that it's short. Often our, our stories uh, dump too much detail in uh, and there are too many different threads in it. So one of the very good things about this story is it's focused, and for that reason, once you finish reading the story, you have um, drilled down on one subject quite deeply. So that's, that's, that's great. I would um, have wanted, almost what I said earlier, I would have, and it might be impossible work to do, but to find out uh, a little bit more about the indictment against, in some of the detail of that indictment. Uh, he's a defendant? What exactly is the charge? Um, how did it? How, what is he being cu- accused of in, pract- in practical terms? Um, and also, it's almost like he, he got off a little bit too easily with just being able to deny without us setting out what the um, questions were. So the, the the allegation was there's a connection between the, the former minister and the business person, uh, and and they deny it. And so that's stated in a um, sort of one sentence in the which is fair it's stated in one sentence in the report um, perhaps a few follow-up questions could also have been sent perhaps around the plane uh, and 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 things like that and and often um, uh, you know but i'm really nitpicking now It's, it's, it's great and it makes its point in a very strong and focused way
0: Thank you, Will and Heinrich, for joining us today and for shedding light on this fascinating case of corruption. This ANSIA podcast was funded by Open Society West Africa and co-produced by the World Policy Institute. Tune in to next month's episode, Flaws in the Sierra Leone Diamond Trade, for a look at Benny Steinmetz, the notorious billionaire and diamond supplier to Tiffany & Co. He camouflaged his wealth in the Sierra Leone diamond business through an offshore entity in the British Virgin Islands And we've got the full story here on Africa Investigates.